Good morning, and uh, if you have your Bibles, if you can turn to Ephesians 6, it's also printed on page 8 of your bulletin. I'm going to read our passage for us this morning. I'm going to start from verse 14. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert, and always keep on praying for all the saints. Amen. Good morning and welcome to Metro. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if you're new or visiting, we are so glad that you are here. Uh, We're uh, wrapping up our sermon series on the uh, book of Ephesians. The armor of God is is the one that we're currently on. And uh, we have two more left, including this one. And then afterwards, we're going to be going into a series of uh, Advent, which I'm also very excited for. So we're going to get right into it. If you look at our passage Uh, We actually have two different categories of armor in this whole suit of armor. Uh, The first section, verses 14 and 15, describes armor that a soldier would wear in whatever circumstance. While in a state of war, from the moment a soldier wakes up to when he goes to sleep, he always has on a belt, a breastplate, and shoes. Those pieces of armor, they never come off, regardless of if a soldier is in the heat of battle or if he's sitting down to enjoy a nice meal. However, the pieces of armor in the second section, verses 16 to 17, the shield, the helmet, and the sword, the one we're going to go through today, are pieces of armor that are put on in specific times of war. A soldier doesn't hold onto his shield, sword, or keep his helmet on while he's eating. That'd be kind of ridiculous. It'd be really difficult to do but he always has them by his side. And if he needs it, he wields it, he takes it with the intention to immediately engage in battle. With that said, the piece of armor that we're going to be exploring today is the helmet of salvation. And I have three very simple points for us uh, to navigate through this. What it is, what it does, and how to get it. It doesn't get any simpler than that. What it is, what it does, and how to get it. So what it is, A helmet, it's made to protect the head from physical injury. And the way that it works is when you receive a blow on the head, the helmet itself, it absorbs the hit and disperses the impact throughout the entire helmet instead of your head. And this is something that we're taught ever since we're little kids. Wear a helmet or your head is going to crack open, especially when you're riding a bike or rollerblading. Rollerblading is coming back. Uh, The helmet also, um, it also provides ways in the Roman times uh, to distinguish between ranks. The higher Roman soldiers would have crests, they'd have like horse hair and different colored, usually red, from from the pictures at least, Um, usually red from the pictures, um, and flourishes on their helmet so that they can never be mistaken for someone of a lower rank. However, this is the part that I really want us to focus on. When a soldier places his helmet on his head, He's symbolizing something. He's symbolizing that it's time to go to battle. He's ready to engage the fight. 
or even when he's being surprised by an oncoming attack, the first thing that he puts on is his helmet. It's a decisive action to go into battle. He's saying, it's about to go down. And think about it. Today, when a football player, he has his helmet off on the sidelines, it's a sign that he's saying he's obviously not ready to go onto the field. But the moment he puts it on, he's saying, coach, put me in. Put me in. I'm ready to go. It's a symbol of intent to fight the oncoming opponent. So this is what it represents. This is what the helmet represents. And this is something I want us to remember throughout this entire sermon as it is very important. So now the helmet of salvation, the salvation aspect of this. The definition of salvation is a source or means of being saved from harm, ruin, or loss. A source or means of being saved from harm, ruin, or loss. In modern terms, in hockey or soccer, when a goalie keeps the ball or puck from entering into the goal, we call that a save. The goalie is the means that saves the team from harm, ruin, or loss. In the wonderful movie Finding Nemo, Marlin, the father, he is the source that keeps uh, Nemo from harm, ruin, or loss. And spoiler alert, he finds Nemo, and he is his salvation. And those in the room who haven't really bought into this whole Christianity thing yet are probably asking yourself, what in the world would I need salvation from? What do I need salvation for? I don't, I don't feel like I need salvation. I think I'm good. Well, you're not alone. And I'd say the majority of the people living in our country probably are thinking the same thing. Even those who profess Christianity to be their faith subconsciously are thinking the same thing. My life is good. I might need salvation a little later on, but I'm good. I'm good right now. Everything's good. So the question is, what is it that we need salvation from? The greatest act of salvation in the Old Testament is the salvation of Israel out of slavery from the Egyptians. And this act was retold generation after generation, and, and it's a story that continues to be recounted hundreds of years later after it occurred. Even today, movies, they're made and they're remade. Prince of Egypt, growing up, I, I used to love that movie. That was like my favorite movie. I didn't watch a lot of movies. Prince of Egypt <laughs> was an awesome movie depicting this story. Most recently, I think it's in 2014, you got Exodus, Gods and Kings with Christian Bale, which is the most inaccurate retelling of the story I have ever seen. But I digress. If you aren't familiar with the story, there was a time when the Israelites, the Jews, lived in Egypt among the Egyptians. But there came a time when the people of Israel, they became too large, too numerous, that the king of Egypt decided to make them slaves and treat them harshly. Even, uh, he even decreed that if any Jewish male child was born, he would be immediately killed. So there was an entire generation of boys of Israel that were practically never born. A defining result of being a slave is a loss of identity. When you're a slave, you lose your identity. You're not given the freedom to be who you were meant to be. Life is hampered. Growth is stunted. You're not given the proper nutrition needed to thrive 
but instead you're subjected to live out an identity that is forced upon you. You're physically overworked, defeated, beaten down, and the moment you try to rise up, you get smacked back down. The people of Israel, they cried out to God in their agony, and God heard them. So he came down and revealed himself to Moses in order to save them. And after witnessing many miracles like the ten plagues and the iconic splitting of the Red Sea done by the Lord, Israel was brought out of Egypt, and God saved them from their past life of slavery. Then the Lord guided uh, them through the treacherous wilderness with the promise that he would ultimately bring them into a paradise flowing with milk and honey where they would finally find the rest and the peace that they so craved. This is the great story of salvation for Israel. But did you know that this was also a reflection of our story? Whether you realize it or not, we're all enslaved by something. As we look into our own lives, it manifests itself in different ways. And these things that we're enslaved by in themselves, they're not bad things. They're actually good things. But it's when good things, they become ultimate things, that's when it becomes a problem. And that's what enslavement means. It becomes master over you, and you're willing to do, or you're forced to do, anything to get it. It becomes an ultimate thing in your life. For some of us, it's as obvious as uh, money, sex, and power. Your life is all about chasing that paper. Or even more subtle or similar, you might be chasing a certain lifestyle that you see others live. Say a friend takes you out to a nice restaurant in a nicer car than yours. You eat and you bask in the luxury. What do you think? You're thinking, man... Wouldn't it be nice to live like this every day? You want a promotion. You want that promotion that you've worked so hard so you'd be respected and admired. That corner office would really elevate your style, your status, and your life. You love it when, you get, when your name gets recognized in front of the whole office. Maybe you're enslaved by the way uh, you want others to view you. You may have a deep sense of fear of people, and you don't want them to think a certain way about you depending on what you say and do, so you're constantly living in fear and anxiety. If you look long and deep enough, there are things that you desperately crave, all of us, a relationship, a job title, recognition that you're a great leader, brother, mother, father, whatever it might be. And at the end of the day, if you're forced or willing to compromise your values or integrity or character in any way to achieve these things, you're a slave. You're a slave. You're a slave to these idols. It's making you do things that you don't necessarily want to do. And these idols make you believe that in them you will find salvation. That once you finally have it, it'll keep you from being ruined by anything else. But the deeper you become involved and obsessed with these idols, the harder it becomes to let it go. And sooner or later, it might be too late, and you've already lost everything. The worst part of idols is that it's never enough. 
nothing is ever enough. There will never be a sense of assurance that you're secure in what you have. You always want more. It's like a fire. A fire is never going to say, hey, that's enough gas, that's enough wood, I'm good. No, but it's going to continue to consume and consume until there's nothing left to consume. And rather than it being your salvation, it actually becomes the very thing that ruins you. Yes, you've, you've, you've finally gotten that position, that status or that lifestyle that you've always wanted, but at what cost? Looking back, you've lost your family, you've lost your community, you've lost your way. And I pray that some of us, many of us, don't think that this won't happen to us because none of us, nobody is impervious to this. Even someone as holy as pastors. We're not that holy. There are many pastors out there who are so fixated on building a megachurch, preaching to as big a crowd as possible, making sure that their name is being recognized. But again, at what cost? Literally, their wives, their kids have left them. They no longer have any true friends. When the good things, when they stop flowing, it's often too late to save the ship. This is what we need salvation from. Ourselves, our desires, our impulses. In fact, our hearts are able to take anything and make them into the center of our lives. One pastor, they, we, uh, he calls our hearts an idol factory. It's actively searching for things to worship, and it's just pumping them out one by one. And that's why some of us move so quickly from obsession to obsession to obsession. We need to be saved from ourselves. So that's what salvation is and why we need it. So now we've established that a helmet represents an attitude of decisive action ready to go into battle and also establish that salvation is something that keeps you from ruin, harm, and danger. That leads, us, that leads me to uh, the second point, what it does. So that was what it is. This is what it does. So to bring these two ideas together, when this helmet of salvation is put on your head, we now have the courage to charge into battle knowing that this helmet will keep us from complete ruin or harm. And at the end of the day, it comes down to assurance. If you think about the concept of assurance, it's essential to our well-being. And this is what assurance is defined as. It's complete confidence or certainty in something or someone. Complete confidence or certainty in something or someone. And a few synonyms of assurance are a promise, a guarantee, a security. But what happens when you don't have assurance? What happens when you don't have assurance? And, uh, and uh, life, especially in Western culture, I think we can all agree that there isn't much out there that provides complete assurance. That's why in our hearts we're marked with so much anxiety and fear. You buy a $1,000 phone, you have to buy a case for it. You have to buy a screen protector for it. What's all that for? Assurance. And the highest level of assurance you can get is Apple Care. But even Apple Care has conditions. There's no assurance. Think about it. You're in a romantic relationship, and there's happiness and delight, but there's also deep insecurity and anxiety, especially if they're out of your league, like my wife. 
I'm way out of her league. I'm just kidding. She's a... We all know the truth here. We all know the truth here. There's happiness and delight when things are going well, but when fights and discontentment settle in, it always will. There's always going to be fights and discontentment. You become anxious and insecure because you don't know if and when the other person is going to break up with you. And the sad thing is that even in marriage, which was created to be the most secure and assured relationship that someone can enter into, is filled with anxiety, fear, and insecurity. Some here are in a life stage where uh, the couples around them are starting to get divorced. And part of the reason why divorces happen is because there is fear and insecurity. Spouses aren't able to address the deep-rooted issues in each other's lives. They're trying so hard to make sure that the other is content that marriage doesn't work like it's supposed to. As husband and wife who are committed to sharpening and being formed in the image of God for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until death do us part. That's supposed to be the marriage assurance. But when assurance is taken out of it, marriage, it falls apart. It stalls any hope for growth or maturity in the relationship. When there's no assurance, there's no rest or peace because the degree in which you measure your assurance, then it depends on how much you do, how well you perform, and that can never be enough. At your workplaces, the harder you work, the more assurance you accrue, yet even then you hear of employees who have dedicated their lives to the company but still get laid off for a younger, cheaper prospect. And now you're working. Not only are you working in a constant state of anxiety and fear, you'll eventually find yourself in situations where you'll be forced to compromise your values in order to keep that job. Uh, we may say that our assurance comes from ourselves, our ability, our determination, but in the previous point, it was shown that we're actually the problem. Our desires, our impulses, and decisions are what puts us in this position of complete ruin in the first place when we make good things into ultimate things. Your job, your bank account, your relationship, even your marriage doesn't provide this courage. And if it does depend on these things, we become subjected to them. We become slaves to them. When your job is going well, your bank account's solid, your relationships are flourishing, and your marriage seemingly is rock-solid, Things are great. You feel like you're in control, but if you've been married for more than a year, you know that things are not always great. Things are never rock solid. So, what happens when things start to corrode, slowly start to crumble? You're no longer in control, but once again, you're enslaved by them. In contrast, what happens when you do have assurance? Having assurance affects all spheres of life. For example, say you have a home. You have assurance in your home security. It allows you 
to find rest and peace while you're in the home, whether you're eating and especially when you're sleeping. You trust that yourself, your belongings, and your family will be safe regardless of what you're doing. But that same assurance in your home security allows you to be bold and courageous in stepping out of your home and adventuring in other things because you're confident that while you're away, everything at home will still be there when you return. In a much larger sense, assurance gives you the courage that even if you screw up everything else in your life, you know that you'll be able to persevere because in that one thing, you're assured that it'll keep you from utter ruin. You're actually more willing to take risks, to make harder decisions because, in a sense, you're playing with house money. You have nothing to lose. Assurance also gives you the ability to create real and lasting relationships. When you're assured of a close friendship, a close relationship with a friend, you give and are given the license to be honest and truthful with each other. And it's only in honesty and truthfulness, of course in love, that friendship, friendships can mature and grow. And you know that even through rough patches, you'll be able to work things out. When there's no assurance, what do you do? You just tell the other person what they want to hear, even if it's horrible counsel. Would you want a friend to be able to be straight up with you and tell you that you have something in your teeth? Or do you want that friend to just let you walk around like an ignorant fool, smiling away at everyone? What's up, man? You're just smiling, and everyone's just staring at your teeth the whole time. Please, if I have something in my teeth, tell me. Our relationship is going to take on a whole nother level, I promise. It allows you also to no longer be nearsighted, always worrying about what's next or what's directly in front of you. But when you have this assurance, you're able to hope for the future, to look, to, to look in, in what's to come in five, ten years, because again, you're assured that there is nothing in the future that can ruin you. No longer are you constantly living life on the defensive, trying to cover up losses and mistakes, but now you can go on living life on the offensive with courage and strength. You no longer need to try to keep filling holes in the boat that's sinking. You can now put up the sail and move forward. More specifically now, what does this helmet of salvation that this passage speaks of, what does it provide for you when you have it? When major things in your life, when they turn sideways, some of us are in that situation now, your financial situation, your family, or even your health, your heart, it begins to talk to you. It begins to fill you with anxiety and fear. Fear that you're just moments away from being completely undone and ruined. But armed with this helmet of salvation, this assurance that we have, you're given the ability to no longer listen, but to speak to your heart and to counsel it. You can say to your heart in times of anxiety and fear, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, and I shall praise him, my salvation and my God. 
You can tell your heart in trying times, be still. Listening to your heart, it gives you anxiety. But talking to it, it gives you peace. When the assurance of salvation doesn't come from within, but someone far more powerful than you, your courage and boldness, they don't fade when difficulties come. Rather, when you put on this helmet of salvation, you become bolder. You become more courageous because salvation does not depend on your circumstances, your heart, or your own strength, but it comes from the source that is completely assured to you. You're given the courage to say in the face of trials and suffering, rejoice, do not rejoice over me, O my enemy. For when I fall, I shall rise. And when I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. This helmet of salvation, it doesn't protect us from suffering and difficulty, but it provides you a buoyancy. That even when you're knocked down, you're knocked over or pushed down, you're never sunk. You're able to rise and overcome. Maybe not right after the difficulties hit, but you have a deep assurance that even in this momentary darkness, it is just that. Momentary. And you will rise. You have a steadiness in your life. And if you think about it, Christians should actually be the most risk-taking, the most courageous. And it's not because you're impervious to sadness and heartbreak. When tragedy and suffering hit, God doesn't call you to just suck it up. He desires for us to mourn and grieve. But Christians can be the most risk-taking and courageous because there is a deep assurance that even in heartbreak, there is never hopelessness. This helmet of salvation also gives you courage to go on the offensive against not only the attacks from the outside, but more importantly, it gives you the boldness and honesty to confront the sins and brokenness in your own life. When putting on this helmet, you're given the power to go into battle against yourself. You no longer need to be afraid of exposing brokenness in your life to the people around you as now there is freedom in this assurance. You have the courage to ask your brother and sister for help with your struggle against an eating disorder, against an addiction to pornography or drugs, a romantic relationship that's become too physical, a deep sense of self-righteousness, a bitterness against your family or your friends that you've harbored for years. With this assurance, mothers have the freedom to share with other moms that they need help, and there are days when they just want to quit as a mom. Couples have the boldness to seek out help and counsel when their marriage is in shambles. Or simply, with this assurance, you have the courage to ask another for forgiveness. It also gives us the power to repent of our brokenness and sin with a genuine and winsome heart. Not out of guilt or shame, but out of sincere love and thankfulness in the Lord. This is what the helmet of salvation will do for you. It not only provides you peace and rest, but courage, boldness, and freedom 
because you've ultimately found security and assurance. And that leads us to my last point and most important point. How do you get it? And the way that you get it is by understanding how that you are saved. Where does this salvation come from? And if you take a look at uh, verse 17 in our passage, Paul says, take the helmet of salvation. And when we think of the word take, we are envisioning that we go somewhere and we grab it, that we can approach a table in our own power and just take it. But that's not what Paul is saying here. The word take in the original language of the Bible is, is dekomai, which means to receive something offered or transmitted by another. To receive something offered or transmitted by another. So Paul here is saying, receive the helmet of salvation. And unlike most things in this life and all, all the other religions in the world which are merit-based, the salvation is given to you freely. It's not something that you earn, but it's something received. It's a gift, meaning that there is nothing that you did to earn it, but there is nothing that you can do to lose it. That's the definition of a gift. Once it's given to you, it's yours. Do you see the difference between this and the idols that we talked about earlier? These idols are masters that never give, but they take. They make you work endlessly, but they can also be taken away in an instant, leaving you ruined. We were trapped in an endless and hopeless cycle of life, and left to ourselves, we would have gone on living enslaved without even knowing it. The Bible tells us that God also saw us in our hopelessness. He saw our hopelessness. Isaiah 59 says this, So justice is driven back, and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him. In his own righteousness, and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as, a, as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in a zeal, in zeal as in a cloak. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is on you will not depart from you. And my words that I have put in your mouth will always be on your lips and on the lips of your children and on the lips of their descendants from this time on and forevermore, says the Lord. God saw that we were living in utter hopelessness, enslaved by our sin and these idols. And as he looked out, he saw that there was absolutely no one capable of bringing salvation to us. We needed a Savior. We needed salvation. So what did he do? Here, we see a majestic picture of a commander strapping on his armor to go to battle. He strapped on the breastplate of righteousness. He put on the garments of vengeance and the cloak of zeal. And by putting on this helmet of salvation, he was declaring 
The time has come to fight for my people. I'm coming to win them back. And that's exactly what he did. He came, but not as a glorious commander-in-chief, but as a humble servant in Jesus Christ. And although he came in weakness as a baby, as a man who had no beauty or majesty or nothing in his appearance that we should desire him, he came as a man completely assured of his salvation. He was the most bold, the most courageous, and the biggest risk-taker this world has ever known. Yet he risked it all, not for his own salvation, but for ours. As Jesus Christ hung on that cross and darkness surrounded him, even at his lowest point, even when he was stripped of this helmet, he never lost assurance of salvation. Yet when he needed this salvation the most, he was forsaken. As he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The object of his salvation his beloved Father, whom he had complete confidence and certainty in, he stood silent. Christ, he took on the suffering and abandonment that we deserved. And in his suffering, he received the crown of thorns in order that we can receive the helmet of salvation. We can be assured that because he was forsaken, we will never be forsaken. We can have complete assurance that because He took on the punishment that we deserved, even in our lowest moments, even when we're stripped of everything, our job, our money, or even the things closest to us, we have assurance that the Father has made a promise that His Holy Spirit will never depart from us from this time on and forevermore. Because Jesus was ultimately forsaken and stripped on the cross, and because Jesus took on the ultimate loss of wealth, security, and assurance of the Father in our place, we were given the ultimate assurance to overcome any of these losses in our lives. This, friends, this is the gospel. But even more, Jesus Christ did not stay dead in the grave, but he rose again in victory. And likewise, we can have hope and assurance to say, as Paul says in Romans 8, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor things present, nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the ultimate assurance for you. There is nothing, not even death itself, that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The God of the universe loves you and is always working for your good according to his purpose that word conqueror, it means that we have prevailed completely in battle through the victory in Jesus Christ. And as soldiers clothed in the armor of God, we now fight a battle 
that has already been won. I'm going to end with this. In his resurrection, Christ became our helmet of salvation. So now when we receive this helmet, we are reminded every day that as long as we have Christ, we will never lose our assurance of salvation. Friends, receive this helmet and live lives that aren't timid and insecure, but bold and courageous, knowing that in Jesus, you will never be ruined because he was ruined for you. And he continues to fight for you each and every day. When we fall, we shall rise. When we sit in darkness, the Lord will be our light.